0: INTRODUCTION Friday, June nineteenth, 1953 Sing Sing Prison, Ossining, New York The room smelled faintly of ammonia, and the dark oak seat was still warm. A little after eight o'clock on a muggy summer night, prison officials carefully strapped the woman into the electric chair. The prison rabbi had stated that her husband was dead killed by the same chair just minutes before. If she offered the name of any spy, the rabbi urged, she could save her life for her children. No, I have no names to give, the woman calmly replied. I'm innocent. I'm prepared to die. The woman could not have known that at that moment in London, protesters were begging Prime Minister Winston Churchill to call the American president and demand clemency for the condemned couple. That tens of thousands of Parisians were demonstrating in the Place de la Concorde, and one had already been shot. That protesters throughout Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Americas, in more than 80 cities around the world, were demonstrating on her behalf. And she never knew that her eldest son, Michael, had been watching a baseball game on television when a news bulletin interrupted the broadcast and announced his parents would die that night. The thirty-seven-year-old mother sat silently as guards attached electrodes and dropped a leather mask over her face. The chair designed for larger frames dwarfed the petite woman. After the electricity surged through her body, The same voltage and oration used to kill her husband, prison doctors placed the stethoscope on the thin green fabric covering her chest. They looked at each other dumbfounded. Her heart was still beating. Prison officials tightened the leather straps and applied additional electricity, conjuring a ghastly plume of smoke that sprang from her masked head, A guard in the tower above the prison's front gate crossed his arms before the waiting crowd, then spread them out like an umpire signaling a player safe at home. More than two years after being convicted of conspiracy to commit espionage, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were dead. Before the Rosenberg execution, the U.S. government had tried to win a propaganda victory by crafting a narrative of this Cold War case. The definitive guilt or innocence of the couple was not the issue for administration officials. As in any good advertising campaign, it was not the truth, but the perception of reality that was important. The federal government was selling the guilt of two atomic spies and the superiority of the American judicial system. As protests broke out around the world, it became clear that the battle had been lost. The far-reaching conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union, known as the Cold War, dominated American domestic and foreign policy during the second half of the 20th century. Communist countries were determined to spread their philosophy throughout the world. Nations that embraced democracy, or at least anti-communism, were equally committed to slowing, stopping, or pushing back the encroachment of communism in this zero-sum game. To many Americans, communism was a threat to democracy, capitalism, religious freedom, and the American way of life. With the World War still a vivid memory— Americans continued to feel vulnerable. Architects of U.S. foreign policy, both Democrat and Republican, understood this and made national security their primary responsibility. They assured Americans they would protect U.S. values, deter aggression, and eventually secure peace. During the Cold War, Americans believed that the primary threat was world domination at the hands of the communists. Politicians, even liberals, would reinvent themselves as tough, manly, aggressive, cold warriors to stand up to the threat of Stalinism. Both Democratic President Harry S. Truman and Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower pledged to keep the United States strong and tough against the communist menace. They were convinced that timidity and weakness directly threatened national security.